When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rockney Cast. For this episode, we're going to cover Malcolm Gladwell's response and self-evaluation on his horrible performance in the Monk debates relating to whether we have a biased media or not. As many of you know, in a recent episode of the Rockney Cast, I covered the awful performance of Malcolm Gladwell in the Monk debates. And I'll briefly summarize first off what the gist of that episode, what the Monk debates are, what the gist of that episode was. And then for this episode, I'm going to cover Malcolm Gladwell also realizes that he did a horrible job and actually posted on his own podcast, Revisionist History, an episode entitled Malcolm Goes to Debate School. And so this episode is going to be my response to that and how awful he did and whether he's drawing the right lesson from how horribly he did, even considering the three top debaters that advised him. And my thesis for this episode of the Rockney cast is that Malcolm is drawing the completely wrong lessons and these debate experts that he retained don't have a clue, and they also don't see it. So that we're going to explore that particular topic about how he still doesn't get it. And a lot of the mainstream media still doesn't get it. Uh, and he's drawing the completely wrong lesson from his horrible performance. So first off, let's remind you, uh, for those of you who did not go and listen to the um, previous episode on the Monk debates, I'm going to remind you what actually happened, who participated, and a thumbnail sketch of some of the concerns that I had outlined. If you want to get more in detail about why I thought he did such a terrible job, go to a recent episode that I did about three or four episodes on that. So what was the topic for, first of all, what are the Monk debates? The Monk debates are hosted in Toronto, Canada, and they're essentially part of this tradition that started in England, among other places, and Oxford. They're these famous, famous debates that go on between intellectual heavyweights and they do very they debate various topics of the day and it's a big part of what they do in Oxford obviously this is also a tradition in the United States and other places but the monk debates are this famous series of debates in Toronto Canada and so this particular debate was between two different uh groups one who supported mainstream media and claimed that they were reliable and intend to report the facts and critics of mainstream media who said that they're no more reliable basically than a potted plant or your uncle Earl who spouts off at the dinner table about what he learned on Fox News. I mean, he may he may be unreliable, but he's about as reliable as the New York Times. So who were these protagonists in this particular debate? So those that were attacking the main team, mainstream media as biased were Matt Taibbi, um, formerly of the Rolling Stone and more recently of the Twitter files, and 
Douglas Murray, kind of an intellectual Oxford educated guy to set a lot of issues on the West and about whether the West is in decline or on the ascent. And he's, he's kind of a cultural polemicist and you'll see him all over YouTube. On the side supporting mainstream media was Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times, who has also been kind of a leading intellectual of the left. And Malcolm Gladwell, which we know who he is. He's been featured in books like, uh, not featured, he's written books like with David Beats Goliath, Blink. Um, he also mo most recently did a book on the bomber squadrons of World War II, uh, relating to like Curtis LeMay and the bombing strategy, strategy in Japan. I love, and by the way, even though I'm ripping Malcolm Gladwell here, I still think he's an incredibly interesting person. And I think his books are great. And I, I encourage you to listen to The uh, Revisionist History. There's a lot of good stuff. And he's still, bar none, one of the most effective storytellers on the, um, in the United States right now and in Canada. He is incredibly effective. But in this particular instance, he got crushed. And so what was the debate topic? Can you trust mainstream media or not? And the format was at the beginning of the debate, the audience was polled about whether they, what their position is on the resolution, which is, can you trust it or not? That's essentially the motion before the audience. At the end of the debate, they then review about whether you which side won based upon whether there was a change in opinion or not. After this debate, the Taibbi-Murray side won, and they not only won, and I just learned this in listening to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History episode on Malcolm Goes to Debate School, they not only lost uh, the influence in terms of the amount of people that changed their mind from beginning to end was the largest point swing ever in the history of the month debate. So in other words, I think I believe it was something on the approximately 15 to 20 points. But the beginning of the episode, I think there was about 47% that didn't trust mainstream media. But at the end, it was 60 plus. There was a significant change and not only was it a significant change, the Taibbi Murray, Murray group persuaded the audience to a level that it was the greatest change based upon the resolution um, ever in the history of the monk debates. And so what was resolved after listening to these two intellectual heavyweights go at it was that a large proportion of the audience believed that you could not trust mainstream media and who are the mainstream media entities like the new york times the washington post nbc news national public radio the canadian broadcasting company and they got crushed and so gladwell to his credit malcolm gladwell does an entire episode on wow i got creamed there's no doubt I, doubt I got creamed. And so I wanted to, obviously it must mean that I'm just not very effective at debate. This episode is gonna be on why I lost. 
and I'm going to get three top debate experts that are going to explain to me why I lost and see if the audience can learn anything as to this horrible failure because I completely got crushed and he admitted that. And as, as, a, as an aside, by the way, I think this is a good thing to do. So many of us want to be proven that we're right all of the time. And to me, that is the opinion of a six-year-old. I think nearly, in fact, to put my money where my mouth is, friends of the Rockney cast, I am going to do an upcoming episode on where I was right on COVID. Yeah, I'm going to go COVID. And where I think I was wrong looking at some of my early concerns that I had related to COVID, COVID and critique Rockney Cole. So I will host myself up on my own petard and engage in self-evaluation, self-reflection, and hopefully then self-correction, because I think we should all try to do that so we can be, become better in our mind, in our bodies, in our spirits. And if we don't self-evaluate, we can never approve. So here's why I thought this episode was so interesting, that after he did this self-evaluation episode, to his credit, he drew the completely wrong lesson. And here's why I think it's so important and I'll get into what the wrong lesson was and why it's so obvious. And I think so many on the left, I, I think, are so incompetent. It's not that I'm right or that conservatives are right all the time. Of course, they're not. The, the question is, as I've observed it and what I've experienced, it, if you look at the leading polemicists on the right, people like Dinesh D'Souza, Matt Walsh, Tucker Carlson, um, to some degree, Paul Ryan, even Paul Ryan, but I'm going to be critical of Paul too. They love debate and they don't shy away from debate because they really realize debate is the essential catalyst to discovering the truth. And to do that, you focus on facts, you focus on argument, you focus on technique, you focus on inspiration. There are a lot of different persuasion tools at your disposal but most importantly, when you have someone on the other side, my background is as a lawyer, who has an incentive to point out factually untrue things that can then tighten your argument, and you can't present an argument in court unless you authenticate documents and a neutral person says, yeah, this is a real true document, and you got to have a person on the stand that says, yeah, this is authentic. And on the left, I don't see this happening. So in response to someone like Matt Walsh, uh, Matt Walsh on the University of Iowa campus, instead of engaging in debate and saying, here's why I think you're wrong, Matt, and here are the studies, and have a thoughtful discussion on this, what does the left do? They riot, they pull fire alarms, they insult, they have two techniques that they use over and over and over again. You're either a misogynist you're engaging in microaggressions, or you're a racist. Those are the three, those are basically their three trick ponies, and that's the only thing that they ever do. And so this is a big topic because I don't care if you're talking about, we've seen, and in terms of COVID, it wasn't a question of debating these things, it was a question of suppressing. And instead, you got a lot of people, whether it's mass policy, 
vaccine policy that wouldn't debate anything whatsoever. And instead, they would virtue signal and claim, oh, you just, I'm, I'm immunocompromised. You have to do whatever the hell I want. I had some idiot in Iowa City say that I couldn't even take a picture of my family without masks because I was potentially threatening his kids. And there wasn't a debate. It was just insult, cajoling, and threatening. That's what the left does. They cannot win on just arguing these things. This is why it is such a big topic. And instead, they do one technique that is a good technique if the authority is actually valued. They appeal to authority. In the journalism world, you look in the United States, there's probably the two most prestigious institutions in journalism would probably be the Washington Post and the New York Times. More nationally, I think historically, maybe you could look at, you know, the Baltimore Sun, Chicago Tribune, LA Times. At one point, the Des Moines Register before it got eviscerated by corporate media. But certainly the Washington Post and New York Times, top of the top, smartest of the smart, yet they're either woefully incompetent or maliciously deceptive, in my humble opinion. And so basically, in terms of the question presented in the Monk debate, um, essentially what they say is, is they're unwilling, so, so what the antagonist, this is a position that Murray, and I'm reading this directly from the Monk debate website, which you're able to, and you can look at the video, by the way, it says, in terms of the opponents of mainstream media, outlets like the New York Times, the Globe and the Mail, and CNN can no longer be relied, relied upon to provide unbiased reporting. Um, activist journalists are using pen and paper to push political agendas while their bosses lean into the profitability of polarization. And so this is a big topic because it gets into the basic element of what journalism is supposed to do. Uh, so there's basically two parts of journalism. One is to report facts as best as we can describe those facts. And then when there is opinion, which is a, certainly a long and storied part of journalism, it's in the opinion section, which is what do we make of these facts that we've reported over here in the other part of the column. So one part is for facts, and the other part is for um, is for opinion. And so Gladwell um, seeks and reviews, the, and so this is an important topic, and this is why I'm covering this, because I think this is something that we all need to care about, because elections are being won, educational policy is being won, and if you can't trust basic elements of the media, then what how are we going to become reasonable decision makers in our democracy? So Malcolm completely fails. Uh, so does Michelle Goldberg, um, who he described as some sort of like, oh my God, she's just she's the A team of the left. She's one of the top. I mean, oh, I mean, if Michelle Goldberg comes on, oh my God, and he, and she cites like, oh my God, he she she's like freaking. Mike Tyson defending the mainstream media. And I'm like, oh my God, if, if Michelle Goldberg is one of the luminaries, I think, I think they're in deep trouble because 
She failed to address one of the most obvious um, issues in terms of the media's failures in the last, I'd say, 15 years. And to me, the scandal is still blossoming. And yes, I'm referring to the Hunter Biden laptop, which was totally ignored in Malcolm Gladwell's um, review of how awful he did and a central part of the argument that transpired during the debate itself. And this is an extraordinarily, this, and this is still unfolding as of May 9th of 2023 in terms of what happened. And this wasn't like a, oh, whoops, the dog ate my homework. No one is claiming that every article is going to be spotless. That is not what Murray, that's not what Taibbi had claimed. What we're talking is about malicious and intentional misrepresentation of facts or withholding facts that we have reason to believe in true and we're consciously withholding those facts. And so Gladwell in his review of how awful he does literally does not mention what transpired during the um, debate relating to the Hunter Biden laptop. So I'm going to talk about the lessons that he did learn, which I do think are helpful because there, there was some review. I mean, he wasn't just, and to his credit, again, he is trying to be better. So I'm going to help him out. You, you, you brought in some experts that I don't know whether you didn't include all of their advice or what, but yeah, the, in terms of what manifested itself, they, they missed, I think, the most important issue here. And either you edited that, which of course you do, it's your show, but there's still some major problems. So, so first of all, before I get into like how he screwed up, let's talk about the feedback he did give himself, which was, I think, very, very helpful. The feedback that he did get um, from these uh debate quote-unquote experts was that the art of debate is not reaffirming or persuading those that already agree with you rather the part is to empathize with people to try to get people over to your side that's the art of politics that's part of law that's the part of sales how do you get someone from this position at point A, and how do you get them to move them over to point B? And you weren't doing that, Malcolm. This is the feedback he got from the so-called experts. Instead, you were arguing as if it was just obvious as to why your position should be right. And as a result of that, you couldn't even imagine how people on the other side could be critical of the New York Times or the Washington Post, as if they were just a bunch of yahoos, right? And so this was kind of the central lesson that he learned. And one of the other debaters, um, debate experts, it was a woman, I, and I don't recall her name at this point, brought up a good point related to this Walter Cronkite issue, in which um, Matt Taibbi, during the first debate, says, what should the goal that we aspire to as journalists and then he brought up the question of Walter Cronkite, this, this, you know, signal American journalist, basically from 1940s-ish to about 1980. And then after that time, he was kind of the elder statesman of journalism. 
and did some episodes, but I believe he died in the 90s. So we all know who Walter Cronkite is. And in Taidian, the first debate says, you know, yeah, when Walter Cronkite was the newscaster, he aspired to give an objective version of reality and people would gather around. And even if they may have disagreed with their perception of reality, they all kind of trusted him as a valid source of facts. In other words, he didn't have a dog in the fight, which is the first purpose, purpose of journalism, is to disclose facts uh, and information to the public so they can make decisions about who to vote for, um, whether they should hold government leaders accountable. It's often been referred to as the fourth estate. Now, during the original debate, Malcolm Gladwell, rather than responding to what he had actually just heard, saying this is what we should aspire to, instead makes a ad hominem character attack on Matt Taibbi and says, well, why are you appealing to an era in which all newscasters were mostly white and most of the focus was on white men? And so it's basically a character attack and not responding to a central point, which is what the goal should be. So one of the debate experts did say, like, Malcolm, that really wasn't what he was saying. What he was saying was, is, yeah, we should all attempt to provide facts and then around the dinner table you can decide what those facts mean that's like in any legal case the first goal is not the hog the first goal is try to figure out what the facts we have what what's true and what's not and what's true to such a degree that we can make decisions on the basis of those facts whether it's the preponderance standard or beyond a reasonable doubt standard in law journalism has a similar standard, which is they're not in the persuasion business. Journalists are in the fact business on what they deem to be the most relevant issues of the day. And so Malcolm does this self-reflection and draws this lesson and even talks about uh, his Jamaican mother because he realizes he was totally crushed. And also to his credit, I also want to celebrate Malcolm. The fact is he went into this debate. That's not easy to do. A lot of the left, and I don't even really consider Malcolm, a lefty person, even though he's within the cultural milieu of like the, the, the New Yorker in New York, he's still very open-minded and a very curious person. And he's a freaking really good writer. So after he screws up in this debate, um, he goes to, he, he self he calls his mom. And his mom, supposedly, he has never had his mom ever on his podcast. And his mom, who's from Jamaica, gives him this, wise phrase that evidently is true in Jamaica, like basically when life gives you lemons, make lemonade or something along those lines in the Jamaican accent. When life gives when life gives you lemons, you got to make a lemonade. That was a horrible one. But in any event, you know what I'm trying to say. So he does this whole episode with experts. And apparently because New York Times, I mean, if you guys actually trust, if you want to read it as a, in my humble opinion, an unvarnished source of truth. Um, in my humble opinion, I don't believe that it is. I believe they have an agenda and they withhold facts and that they're not accurate. In my humble opinion, defamation lawyers, in my opinion, I don't believe it based upon the facts that I've been able to observe are true. And what Malcolm totally ignores is the Hunter Biden laptop. It's brought up, but only kind of tangentially, which is um, why did the New York Times not seriously investigate 
concrete proof that the presidential candidate of the United States, at that time, Joe Biden, October of 2020, was likely, uh, his son was likely talking with Biden about Ukraine foreign policy and, and money was being exchanged, um, not necessarily directly between Biden and Joe Biden Sr. and the Ukrainians, but money was being exchanged between Hunter Biden and Ukrainian officials. And shortly after, Biden's admitting that he's kind of the point person on Ukrainian policy. And this was dismissed when it came out as essentially propaganda. And Malcolm, in his review of the mainstream media, didn't address this as an issue. And this is the issue because this was a huge story. So when I got together with some buddies of mine, they kind of needed a refresher on, on the laptop. This is something that you can all do uh, in the papers, and you can just Google it to see what was reported. But I'm doing that work for you, and uh, the New York Times basically did not. And as a result, make up your own mind as to whether they're incompetent and whether we should trust the New York Times. I think they're a bunch of overeducated hacks that are about as reliable as your Uncle Earl. Now, I mean, your Uncle Earl, I mean, he could be kind of reliable sometimes. But when he has his beer belly and he's, you know, and he's talking, spouting off on various things, they're about as reliable and accurate, in my opinion, as your barber. You know, they kind of it's kind of this mixture of fact, observation, and opinion. That, in my opinion, is the New York Times. And you need to look no further than the Hunter Biden laptop. So I'll describe what it is, but Malcolm, the lesson that he draws is that it's his debate skill. And if only he were, like, if he had been trained as a debater, he could have gone toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and he could have uh, defeated Malcolm Murray. And in fact, one loser who Malcolm didn't name was like, oh, I should have warned you that Douglas Murray is a top debater from Oxford and one of the best debaters in the world. And it's kind of like going up against Mike Tyson. So you shouldn't have even gone on. I think it's kind of like, well, yes, of course your advocacy skills matter, but when you got better facts, you're a better freaking lawyer. Conversely, you know, if you're representing Charles fucking Manson, I don't give a shit if you have F. Lee Bailey, Johnny Cochran, you know, all the best lawyers in the world, your, your client's going to fucking jail, right? And the facts are bad. I don't care what lawyer you have. Good law occurs on close cases. And in this particular case, Murray and Taibbi won because of the laptop. And that's just so obvious that they had a way better fact that the Washington Post, because of ideological and apparently, this is what I'm inferring, and it's my opinion, and the New York Times, which are basically are a bunch of lambs, um, weak people that really, you know, could punch their way out of a paper bag, go to all the right schools, they get the right job, they get the announcements, they then go and they're prestigious, but are they really prestigious or are they just, did they go through the right channels to get there? And are they any more reliable than your Uncle Earl? I think your Uncle Earl is much more reliable. So I think Taibbi and Murray won. Yeah, of course, they're very effective. And Murray, I love Douglas Murray. He's freaking awesome. He does not give a fuck what you think about. And you're not going to be able to say, oh, you're a racist or you're a misogynist 
he'll basically just ignore it and just still kick your ass. I mean, he's just an incredible debater and he does not care what sort of um, ad hominem attacks you make against him. So for those of you who don't remember, let me just summarize the first four sentences of the New York Post article on Hunter Biden. And let's set the stage for this. This is three weeks prior to the presidential election. Okay, so here's the first four sentences. Number one, Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine to firing a prosecutor who was investigating the company, according to emails by the Post. Number one. So, and this is a number two, and this is Burisma. The, the, this prosecutor in Ukraine was investigating Burisma. Okay, so that's important. And introducing to Joe Biden. Number two, the never before meeting, and I'm quoting verbatim from the Post article that was not interesting to the New York Times. Number two, the never-before meeting is mentioned in a message of appreciation that Vadim Pozasarsky, an advisor to the board of Burisma, allegedly sent Hunter Biden on April 17th, 2015, about a year after Hunter, Bo Burisma, Hunter Biden joined the Burisma board at a reported salary of $50,000 a month. Number three. Here is the email that was recovered from Hunter Biden's laptop. Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to DC and giving an opportunity to meet your father and spend some time together. It's really an honor and a pleasure, the email reads. And number four, an earlier email from May of 2014 shows Pozarski, reportedly Burisma's number three exec, asking Hunter for advice on how you could use your influence on the company's behalf. Now, at the time this information was disclosed, this information, as the article reports, and all of this has been confirmed, uh, the, the computer was dropped off at a repair shop in Biden's home state in Delaware in April of 2019. So, so this was a legitimate issue. And they also talk about how it was received the article, which you can see on the New York Post, I'll include links to it in, in my description of this episode, um, also includes a copy of an FBI subpoena relating to the laptop, right? So why was this important in terms of not why we should care, but what are the facts? First of all, are these facts relevant to the election. Well, first of all, isn't the point of, of, of a journalist to say, oh, okay, yeah, these are pretty important facts. So we have Hunter Biden with no experience whatsoever in international oil, no experience in energy, no expertise in Ukraine, who obtains a job with Burisma in 2014, making $600,000 a year with no expertise. And prior to this time, Biden had denied, this is Joe Sr., that he had any conversations with his son Hunter about what he was doing with Burisma. Now, a lot of people are like, yeah, right, he's making 600 grand a year and you have no conversations. But the reason why the laptop was so important is this was smoking gun proof. This was like an admission. 
This is like if you're in an employment discrimination case where the executive's like, yeah, we didn't hire this guy because he was black, right? I mean, or we don't like women and they're never going to get into a certain position. Like it, the evidence, I'm saying from a legal perspective, does not get any better than this. This is smoking gun proof. What? That they met. Joe Biden Sr. met and Joe and Hunter Biden met and, the, and, and with this Burisma executive. And the again, this Burisma executive met with Biden Sr. and spent some time together. So they were talking. The Burisma executive or advisor to the board where Hunter's making $50,000 a year with no experience, facilitated a meeting with Joe Biden relating to what was happening with a, potentially a corruption investigation, okay? Remember, that's the first sentence. They met with a top executive less than a year before Biden then ultimately pressured Ukraine into firing the prosecutor. And this is all over the internet too. Biden admits on tape, but yeah, if you don't fire this guy, we're going to withhold a billion dollars in loan guarantees. Fire him, or we're going to yank the support. At the same time, his son is making $600,000 a year. So this is clearly relevant. This is something you should know about. And in terms of, so what, so if you get this report, and so this was vetted, the New York Post wrote it up, and you can see it on there. And what was the New York Times response to this? Well, their response was, yeah, they didn't really report on it. Um, they kind of raised some concerns about whether it was potentially a Russian disinformation campaign. Uh, they did not even admit that it was authentic or write that it was authentic or assign anyone that was authentic. Instead, um, they talked to some, they relied and reported uh, that there were 54 intelligence officials that had said that this could be Russian disinformation. And this is even more insane because the article comes out October 14th. Within a couple of days, and, and there's an October 19th, 2020 political article, which basically in which Hunter Biden is claiming that it's Russian di disinformation and 54 intelligence officials who had worked in the United States government had also claimed that this was just Russian disinformation, although they couldn't have confirmed the authenticity as all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. And the New York Times did virtually no detailed reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop prior to the election. Neither did the Washington Post. And it took them approximately until April 1st of 2022 for them to finally admit that indeed the laptop had been verified as authentic, that is actually Hunter Biden's laptop, and, and that it had not been compromised and it had not been inf infiltrated by quote unquote, Russian disinformation. So in summary, laptop three weeks prior to the election contained smoking gun proof that the son of the sitting vice president was paid, well, this was already public knowledge, but um, where everyone knew was paid $600,000 a year to work as a board member at Burisma, because it was $50,000 a month. Biden threw out the campaign and said, 
I never talked business with him. No connection, no details. That was his, his talking point. The laptop showed that that was an out-and-out -out lie, or at least there was an email confirming to Hunter, thank you for the meeting, right? And would, if you're the editor of the New York Times and you don't have an agenda, would you try to then say, yeah, I'm going to sign a reporter to this to say, hey, is this authentic? Is this disinformation? Um, would I widely report um, intelligence officials who are claiming that it's 20, you know, in five days afterwards, it appears to be Russian disinformation when it's purely opinion, when apparently none of them uh, had had the opportunity to review the laptop and instead you're publishing this, entities like Politico were publishing this as if it was significant and they had not had an opportunity. These 54 intelligence officials had not had the opportunity to look at the laptop. Neither the Washington Post nor the New York Times looked into it. They didn't discuss it. They, I mean, I, I think it was widely reported. Twitter at the time is stopping New York Post from even writing about this uh, and, and blocked their account for two weeks, right? Prior to the election, on the basis that it violated their hacked materials policy. So this is a huge story. And this is something that has not, um, is still an ongoing story in terms of the amount of corruption that occurs. And as aside from whether it's corruption or not, the issue here relates to whether the media is biased or not, and the fact that Malcolm Gladwell is drawing the wrong lesson. Um, why didn't, and they didn't answer that. You know, one of the things that Michelle Goldberg said is that, well, if you followed the New York Times, and you followed the Washington Post and the CBC, you would have a pretty good idea of what was going on in the country. You would, you would, you would really, you would be more likely to be in the know than some than your uncle Earl that's just kind of watching Fox News and you know making random observations or your barber, like you know, or or reading Substack or Twitter. Twitter was more biased than it is now. Yeah, you would, you would kind of know that. Yet at the same time, Malcolm and Michelle could not and and would not defend why they basically sat on the Hunter Biden. Um, laptop for as long as they did. In other words, it wasn't substantially reported at all by the New York Times. And instead, to the extent it was reported, was kind of just, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, oh, well, that's just a conservative conspiracy theory. There's no validity to it. It was kind of mentioned, but not, she attempted a small response, but we still weren't clear whether there could have been some issues relating to the authenticity, and there may have been some concerns but the point is, is the investigation itself was not done. It was a huge story. The New York Post investigated it. But not only did the New York Times not do it the three weeks prior to the election, which they all had, you know, stories to report. It took them basically 18 months after that to acknowledge that, yes, in fact, it was Hunter Biden's laptop. And that laptop contained information showing a meeting between the then Vice President of the United States and a Ukrainian business person who was advisor to the same board that Hunter Biden was receiving $50,000 a year or a month for, at least $600,000 a year with no expertise. And none of that information was provided to the New York Times or via the New York Times or the Washington Post prior to the election.
So to the answer, and Michelle Normalcom even addressed that. Instead, what did Malcolm and Michelle do? It kind of like, oh, well, they kind of knew they were going to raise it, but they didn't really respond to it. Instead, Malcolm did what nearly all liberals that I've observed do. Rather than respond to the actual facts, they then instead resort to, oh, Matt Taibbi, you must be a racist. It's kind of like Jeff Bockworth, you know you're a redneck if, if you disagree with a lib, then you must be a racist. If you disagree with a woman, you're mansplaining. If you disagree with a liberal woman, you are a misogynist. They're reckless with their use of words. They have no intention of ever getting to the truth. They don't understand the elements of debate. And instead, they completely ignore it. And they, and they continue to propagate inane responses to this. One argument I've heard by seemingly smart people is that, oh, well, we all know that Joe Biden had no de jure power in the government. He's just the vice president, so he can't actually take any official act, which is the requirement for corruption, right? You got to have a quid pro quo. Like, you actually have to be able to, you know, do something. If you don't have the power, it's not corruption. This is so mind-blowingly idiotic. Uh, it can be easily rebutted. What are lobbyists? Lobbyists have no power whatsoever. They're just people that you pay to lobby people in power to persuade. And at the time, Biden was the point person on Ukraine policy. Yes, the president was the one that makes the final decision, but he's the one in the know. And he's on record saying at the time he had enough power that he was entrusted by Obama to make the following statement. If you don't follow, fire the prosecutor that's investigating, in fact, as we know now, my son's company, you're not going to get $1 billion in loan guarantees. And Biden's central position was, is that was just because of official corruption, nothing to do with Hunter. Well, but shouldn't we, in making up our own minds via the journalist community, shouldn't we at least know that, in fact, he did meet with a member of that Burisma? who was being investigated by the prosecutor, and that that meeting was facilitated by his son, Hunter, who is being paid $50,000 a month for a field that he has no expertise whatsoever in. And there's other stuff on the laptop, which I, I frankly don't care about. I mean, it's there's a question about the cocaine, the hookers, all those sorts of things. It's embarrassing, but I, I wouldn't have had a problem with the journalist basically saying like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of JFK and his babes. I, I you know, whatever. I, I'm not really too concerned about that. I don't think that's relevant. What was relevant were the payments that was withheld and they weren't investigated. And Malcolm, even, at, even after he's had an opportunity to think about how poorly he performed, his conclusion was, I performed poorly because I'm just not a skilled debater. Um, I think to a certain degree that's probably true. I mean, obviously his skill is being a really interesting storyteller. But I think at some point, the New York Times, the, these basically intellectual lambs, I think they kind of realized that, I mean, if you want to read them, it's fine, but it's not journalism. It's opinion. And these people have agendas. And they're not reliable. And how do we know? They withheld deliberately probably the most important piece of evidence that we had prior to the election. And who knows? 
how it could have swayed the election. And can we honestly say with a straight face, if Eric or Don Jr. were meeting with a Ukrainian foreign national, who, by the way, I mean, anytime you're talking about payments of foreign governments trying to influence federal policy, that's a major issue. That's not something you can just kind of write off as just nothing more than total BS. That's big. That's big time. And we know that Biden is a malicious liar because he, in the debate against Trump, said, hey, 54 people have said it's Russian disinformation. And he knew it was not Russian disinformation. How do we know he knew? Because he met with the Ukrainian via these emails. And he did meet with them, which was directly opposite. He said during the campaign, I did not meet with them. And the email shows that he did. And they were real. And we all know now that these were all authentic. They were not the result of Russian disinformation. And the intelligent letters, and this, is, this came up within the last day, May 9th, the only reason why that letter from the 54 intelligence, so as a reminder, after the Hunter Biden explosive email came, email article came out October 14th, on October 19th or thereabouts, um, the CIA had pre-cleared these intelligence officials to respond. Why? Because you just can't go work for the CIA and start spouting off. So you had agents of the federal government acting within five days to clear the 54. Biden then uses this information to debate claiming it's Russian disinformation, which is a lie, and we know it's a lie. And the New York Times, and by the way, I mean, people lie. I mean, it happens all the time on cross-examination. Again, as a lawyer, this kind of document where you say one thing, so let me just, I'll cross-examine hypothetical Joe Biden. So, Mr. President, you were saying that you, in fact, never met with Burisma, correct? And you're still saying that today, true? Well, isn't it a fact that, in fact, you did meet this official from Ukraine? Isn't that a fact? Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's not a fact? Would it help refresh your recollection if you looked at this email from your son's laptop? Isn't it true that that email says that you, in fact, did meet and that your hunter that Hunter Biden set that up for you? Yes, did you meet with him or not? It's a diametrically opposed statement from what he had claimed throughout the campaign that he had no connection with Hunter Biden's business stealing. Not only did he have a connection, he met with Burisma and eight months later, an official action was taken, he threatened to withhold and within six hours, that official was fired. The CIA officials then, who obviously, when, when you make these public statements and you sign your name to them, people like John Brennan and Mr. Clapper, this can't spout up. You got to get cleared. Within five days, they declassified this information to allow them to make the letter and then debate and then allow Biden to say, hey, during the debate, hey, this is a total lie. It's just right wing or Russian disinformation. And we all know now that, in fact, Biden was unequivocally lying because of the issue related to the laptop. And so the issue here is, is where was the media? 
why didn't the New York Post, the New York Times, um, why didn't they report on us in a, in a way in which they, one, confirmed that it was authentic, right? It was instead considered just to be Russian disinformation until 18 months afterwards. And how do I know that? Michelle Goldberg works for the New York Times. She brought up kind of a half-assed response, but she didn't say, no, you're wrong. We we looked into this. We, we felt at her best approach probably would have been to say, hey, we realized it was a big story. We just determined we were just basically incompetent. Because, yeah, there's a forensic part with emails in terms of whether you can do an you know, external influence in terms of whether this could have been planted in the document. But there's also an easy way. You can call the, the sender and the recipient of the email. Hunter, can you confirm or deny that this email was sent to you? Hunter, was this your laptop? The person that sent the emails, even if the one that sent the, the killer email won't confirm or deny, they have to be on record. We won't confirm or deny that the email was sent. Other emails, you can also ask them, hey, we've discovered a treasure trove of emails in this laptop to go through those emails. And you can call the people. Is this, is this your email address? Can you independently confirm that your email is an exact copy of what was found in the, and the, there's ways you can do this. Yeah, there's the high-tech way and there's a low-tech way. And Michelle Goldberg didn't outline any of this. Malcolm Gladwell rolled his eyes. And Malcolm, it's not that you were so ineffective at debate. In fact, I think you were pretty darn good. It's that the facts were bad and you refused to admit that the facts were bad. And here's the issue is that it's not like, oh, they were just randomly assigned. They actually believed it. Michelle Goldberg obviously believes she has a, she's working for a legitimate organization. Well, if you're down and you want to really, you know, rely upon opinion and innuendo and is it more reliable than Uncle Earl? I, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily is. So Malcolm, you're drawing the wrong lesson. You did not lose the debate because of your, uh, you, well, there was one poor debating technique that you did use that you really didn't assess. It wasn't just a failure of empathy. It's that the central fact is that the laptop does prove that was not reported widely or extensively by the New York Times or the Washington Post. They've never provided a convincing reason as to why it wasn't reported. And instead, they basically indicate that it, it wasn't authenticated, it could be Russian disinformation. And you never explained why. So the facts were better for Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray, that in fact, New York Times and Washington Post are liberal entities, and they are no more reliable, in my opinion, than your Uncle Earl. The other thing that I think you totally missed, Malcolm, was accusing what you did is you accused Matt Taibbi of being a racist because he referred to another white man, Walter Cronkite, as a standard for to which we should apply to. And Malcolm responded rather than, again, responding to whether, in fact, it was as accurate. So the response should be, this was a time where the facts were more accurate uh, then than they are now. Your response should have been, well, well hey, Malcolm, that, that even Cronkite made his share of mistakes. You know, the early run-up to the war in Vietnam, they were not doing a detailed response uh, to, to what was going on there. So rather than responding to what Matt Taibbi was saying, that this is a standard that we should 
aspire to, which is unbiased reporting of facts. Malcolm Gladwell insults him and, and basically implies that he's a racist. And this is this is the technique. You cannot make one adverse comment on a person of color without being accused of being a racist. Like you missed that point. And just because you disagree with a woman does not make you misogynist. Just because you think a liberal woman is incompetent does not mean you're mansplaining. Just because you engage in an argument with a person of color does not mean you're racist. That does not mean that. And if that's the technique, and, and yet we see this permeating the Democratic Party. And you need to look no more recently than Zach Walls, we'll do a separate one on this, calling him out on this, rather than debating Republicans on policy. Uh, he instead says their policies are cruel and they're pouring gasoline on the culture wars, which, by the way, that they started. And I don't think Republicans are putting gasoline. I think they're pouring water on the culture wars that the Democrats started, where they don't respect working class people, where they don't respect their religion, where they don't respect their um, right to live their lives free from government experience, where they don't respect the right of free speech, where they don't respect the right of public order, where they don't respect the right to have uh, public safety for, for working class people and instead accuse them of dog whistles and racism. That's the only technique that they have. And it is demonstrated by the month debates. That's why I think that this was interesting. That So, Malcolm, it's not that you're a poor debater. Well, I mean, yeah, leveling racism as an unfounded accusation, you, you didn't even address that. And number two, if Dems want to know why they've lost so much of middle, middle America, is that People are not going to change their mind if you insult and humiliate them. I don't know why the Dems can't understand that. It may shut them up in a classroom, but it is not going to persuade them. And you need to look no farther than all of the Trump-Obama counties. If voting for Trump makes you racist... Why were there so many Obama counties? Were they did they temporarily res restrict their racism and then vote for Obama just so they could feel better about themselves? Maybe that happened in some cases, but that's the issue, Malcolm. It's not that you were a poor debater. In fact, I think you did a, as good a job as you could, but that you would not acknowledge the obvious failure of the New York Times, and neither would Michelle, who I think made a lot of otherwise not that effective comments either, but that the Washington Post and the New York Times withheld that information from the American people and instead through the reporting, in my opinion, implied that it was Russian disinformation. And number two, you used a standard debate technique, which a junior high student should avoid. Rather than respond to the argument, you relied on ad hominem attacks and characterized um, Douglas Murray as a racist and Matt Taibbi as a racist. That's why you lost. It wasn't because of your, um, so you don't necessarily, you need to go to debate school, but you need to go for a different reason. So friends, that is this particular episode of the Rockney cast. This is, you know, these episodes, they've been kind of bombing when I've been involved in more political stuff, but I do think this is important that we all kind of do our part to get these issues out there. 
and that you can share, you know, I'm going to post some links on the uh, website, uh, on the podcast, so you can check out for yourself as to whether you believe, or you can just Google it, just Google New York Post Hunter Biden laptop. You can get the original article. This information was not reported on by the New York Times um, or the Washington Post as authentic, and they did not do any investigative reporting related to that topic. That was a big issue. And it was not done um, because of their own either incompetence or malice, one of which, and I think their best approach would have been for them just to own up to that. So we're going to continue to do, I'm going to do some other episodes in the coming week or two. Uh, it's going to be on COVID, where I was right, where I was wrong, which is kind of another boring but important topic. Um, because I do think it's important that we look at and acknowledge where we're wrong um, and how we how we got there. So hopefully, if we can look at how we were wrong in the first place, that can give us some more effective uh, techniques in the future to avoid being wrong in the future. Because although I'm happy to admit when I am wrong, the goal should be to avoid being wrong again in the future. Infinite gratitude to all of you who have tuned into the Rocking Cast. Please continue to give me positive reviews on Apple, Spotify, and all places where podcasts are heard. Share it with friends, share it with loved ones, share it with your enemies, share it with everyone and spread the word of what we're trying to do here in the Rockney Cast. Until you and I meet again next time on the Rockney Cast. <laughs>